The scripture passage for this morning comes from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is the word of the Lord. For a brief moment, we're going to be looking at some passages about sin, about cross, about redemption in Christ, and about glory, the glory of God. And this is how we're going to observe Lent over the course of the next several weeks. These are the flavors of Easter, uh, if you will. And uh, today we're going to be addressing sin. Sin is very, very complicated. Sin is very nuanced. We look at it as just mere acts, but it's a lot more than just acts. Uh, it's very complicated, very nuanced. Sin, according to the Bible, is like a chronic disease. It corrodes you, erodes you, until you lead, it leads to death. And so we need a cure. We need a cure. Today's an interesting text. Um, it's about sin. It's about death. It's about healing. Um, but it's a, it's a rather obscure historical account. But when you read it, it's actually kind of disturbing. It's a disturbing text. Brief summary, background, right? Um, the Israelites, they were God's people. They were rescued out of slavery, slavery in Egypt. And they were brought to or across the Red Sea. And they've been since then wandering in the desert, wandering in the wilderness, God gave them manna. He provided food for them. But for the bulk of the time that they were wandering, they were hungry, they were thirsty, they just needed constant care. And the people grew impatient. There was no bread, there was no water. They detested manna after a while. And so they started to complain. Every day, manna would appear in the ground, they would collect it. It was this doughy resin that they would build into cakes and types of bread. But they got tired of eating this every day. And so they started to grumble against God, grumble against Moses. And what did God do? In response, he sends these venomous snakes who bit them, and as a result, many of them died. And after that, the people appeal to God. They say, Moses, appeal on our behalf. And so they send against the Lord. They send against Moses. Please pray for us. Moses starts to pray for them. And the Lord tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make the snake, put it up on a pole, and as the people look at this snake... They'll live. So Moses makes a snake out of bronze, puts it up on a pole, does exactly what the Lord says, and the people look at the snake and they live. Very disturbing passage. It's a very interesting passage. It's incredibly nuanced. A lot of people struggle with this text because it seems for a lot of people typical of a very angry God in the Old Testament. They like the God of the New Testament. They don't like the God of the Old Testament because of passages like this. It seems, you know, why? Because it seems like a disproportionate response. The people were hungry, they got tired of the food, and they were complaining. So God said, I'm going to kill you, right? It seems very, uh, 
very unfair. Patrons, you know, patrons don't like the chef's cooking, so he condemns them to death. Um, I'm going to submit to you that this is not a disproportionate response. It's very proportional. God, through this text, is providing us a mirror by which we can see all of ourselves. And if you see yourself, there's this possibility of finding real healing. If you see the nature of ourselves, there is a possibility of finding real healing, true healing from the inner brokenness that exists, that's corroding our souls every day, every moment. So this passage, it's all related to the the disease, the death of sin. So we need the diagnosis, we need the healing. There are three things here we're going to learn today. The problem of sin, the pain of sin, and the prescription of sin. The problem, the pain, the prescription. First, we're going to go into the problem of sin. And you see this in verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read this. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. God has been leading the Israelites through the desert with a radiant cloud by day and this fire at night. He has shown a visible demonstration of his love and care for them, visibly guiding them through the wilderness. His Shekinah glory presence in their midst And uh, he provides them with manna, the bread of heaven. Every morning he provides them with this. And uh, it represents the power of God. It represents the provision of God. It represented the presence of God. He's there with them. The nearness of God in intimacy. They need to digest this food. He's leading them through the cloud fire every day. They're digesting his provision every day. But their complaint is what? I can't stand this food. I eat it every day, every meal. I can't stand this food. They reject the manna. The text says they grew impatient of this manna. And this is the problem of sin. Our grumbling, our complaining is an indication of the dissatisfaction in our lives. That's why we're impatient. That's why we're grumbling. We're not happy with our lives. We're wholly dissatisfied in our lives. Scripture says, no matter what kind of blessings you experience in life, you're never going to be satisfied. You're, you're never grateful, not never really grateful. And this is our condition. In this passage, verse 6, what does God do? He sends these fiery snakes, these venomous snakes. The NIV translation calls it venomous snakes. Um, it's probably not as good as what the English Standard Version or the King James Version, the traditional King James Version says. The King James Version calls it fiery snakes. Saraf, the word is fiery snakes. The Lord sends these fiery snakes to the Israelites who bit them and they died. Um, they were not snakes on fire. If you look at ancient paintings or, or paintings from hundreds of years ago, God sends these snakes that are on fire that come and bite them and sets them on fire. That's actually, you know, if, if anything, it's probably a little bit more of um, a visual representation of what was going on internally. The snakes had such a venom that when they bit you, it, it would create a thirst. And that thirst would rage into a fever. It would make you incredibly dehydrated. And over the course of time, it would feel like your body is on fire until you die. You'd be consumed into death. And this fiery venom, when it bit you, when these snakes bit you, one of the symptoms was this incredible thirst. Eats away at your body and consumes you. You die. It's like hell in your life. You know, hell is fire. What scripture is saying is this. This is a picture of our souls. It's why we're always dissatisfied. 
we're always ungrateful. We're never grateful. Deep inside, there's a poison that's coursing through in our lives, sin. And it creates this fire in our souls, this spiritual thirst in our lives, and results in a deep, deep sense of dissatisfaction, grumbling, a sense of entitlement, a sense of deserving. The Israelites say, manna again? That's what, they, that's what they're saying. God sends these snakes. They bite them. And this fire, this thirst, this fever starts to well up in them and it consumes them until they die. And this is why the fiery serpents, it's not a, dis- a disproportion. God is not disproportionately acting. What he's doing is he's showing us an accurate picture of what's really going on in our hearts. The thirst. It explains a deep sense of insecurity, a deep sense of dissatisfaction with, place, with our places in life. And that's the reason why, as a result, we're always working so hard to find a sense of worth. We're always working very hard to find a sense of worth. We're, we're looking for it in our jobs. We're looking for it in our wealth, in our income, in our salary, in our sex lives, in our status, our pedigree, our relationships. Where does that come from? In Genesis chapter 3, there's another snake. And this serpent, what does he do? He tempts us of our thirst. The serpent tells Eve, the serpent tells Adam, forget about what you have. Forget about what God has given you. Did God really say, you know, not to touch that because you're going to die? Because you can actually have more. If you, listen to, if you listen to what I'm telling you, you can have more. You can be like God. And that is the ultimate temptation. You can take his place. You can have control in your life. For Adam who was in paradise, who had the presence of God, it was not enough. After what the serpent said to him, it stopped being enough. There was this deep satisfaction that took over his life. And ever since the garden, because we chose to take control of our lives, we lost control. Because we tried to make ourselves more human, we became dehumanized. Because we tried to become more of ourselves, we actually started to become less of ourselves. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, and as a result, what did they experience for the first time in their lives? Alienation, dissociation, dislocation, and since then, this raging thirst, this desire to get back into the garden, because they know that's where the water is, that's where the provision is, this desire to build up for themselves a new garden, this raging thirst, even paradise didn't satisfy them. They thought they could have more, they wanted more. There's this great movie, at least what I think is a great movie, um, in the 1990s, uh, this movie called Tombstone. And uh, uh, Doc Holliday is, is lying sick in bed, and it's a story of Wyatt Earp, a true story of Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp goes to Doc Holliday. He's about to face his arch enemy, and he asks his arch enemy, well, he asks about him to Doc Holliday. And he says, what is this man like Ringo? What is he like? And this is what Doc Holliday says. He says, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of him. He can never kill enough, he can never steal enough, or inflict enough pain to ever fill it. In 1991, Lynn Hirschberg, she's a commentator for Vanity Fair magazine, she wrote an article about Madonna called The Misfit. And in there, in this interview with Madonna, always well-quoted, a very famous quote, Madonna says this, I have an iron will... And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. To discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. 
And I find my way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always been pushing me and pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. <clears throat> the problem of sin is this it creates this raging thirst. This raging thirst. You're never satisfied. You're never satisfied with your place in life. You've got this God-sized hole right in the middle of you. That's what sin does. It creates this God-sized hole, and you're always just overworking, working yourself. You're insecure. You're afraid. You're impatient. You're grumbling. And when things work out, you're satisfied to a degree, but this God-sized hole gets bigger because nothing can fill it. You're constantly trying to fill it, and that's why you're overworking. That's the problem of sin. You're never satisfied. It creates this God-sized hole in our lives that we're always working to try to fill. And as a result, we're complaining and grumbling. Second is the pain, the pain of sin. Two things, two amazing consequences of sin is this. It leads to alienation and it leads to suffering. In verses 4 and 5, the people speak against God. They speak against Moses. In other words, before the reality of the problem actually hit, The problem was alienating them already from God. Before the the problem of the snakes, there was this distance that the people had because of their dissatisfaction with him. Because of what they, they're never happy, and as a result, they've become distant from God, alienated from him, dislocated from him, just like Adam in the garden. And so from the very people who, who loved and shepherded and provided for them, they've dislocated themselves from them. You're looking at the only true source of satisfaction. What are you saying? I'm not satisfied. You're looking at the only true source of provision. And what are you saying? You have not provided for me. I need more. I need to take matters in my own hands. That's what sin does. It alienates you. Genesis chapter 3. Back in the garden. You have this fruit. Eve and Adam take of the fruit. And they become naked. For the first time in their lives, they feel shame. And so they cover themselves. They cover themselves from each other. They hide from God. So you see this alienation from God. That's what sin does. And then you see alienation from each other. They complain against God and they complain against Moses. That's the first thing. You see alienation. The second thing you see is suffering. You really don't start to see what's destroying you. You really don't see what's starting to hurt you until you start to suffer. You don't see the tumor that's growing on inside, growing inside of your, your system until you start to suffer from it. So in verse 6, the thirst is raging. They're dying. There's death. They're becoming consumed. What is suffering? At the root, it shows us what's killing you. Suffering shows us what's killing, what's really killing you. It shows you the tumor that's eroding you, corroding your soul. But once you begin to suffer, you start to wake up. You've got this tumor that's growing undetected. Some people may start to see it over time, but you, you don't see it. But when you start to suffer, you start to wake up. You start to see that there's urgency, a need to change. Right now, I, I need to do something about this. Now, I don't know how many people have come to me over the years, and, you know, they're suffering. And they say, today or this weekend, my boyfriend broke up with me. And I realized then and there how much I put on him. Today I realized that, well, today I realized how much my girlfriend, how much I put on her because she broke up with me this past week. 
and I've been suffering. And then I realized, wow, I put a lot of my identity in this person. This past week, I lost my job. And I realized, wow, I have a tremendous pride. I put a lot on my income status. I put a lot on my pedigree. And I didn't realize that until I lost it. I never realized how dependent I was on these things. Because before the suffering hits, you complain about your spouses. You complain about your boyfriend. You complain about your girlfriend. You complain about your job. You complain about your looks. Before the suffering hits, you take these things for granted. And then it hits. Then the suffering hits. And when the suffering hits, you know, you get sick, you're hurt by somebody, you lose your job, you realize, wow, I have been incredibly impatient. Now, sometimes it takes time. It takes a lot of time because the suffering has, takes hold and you're consumed by the suffering. But over the course of time, you realize, wow, I've taken these things for granted. I've detested God's provision in my life. I didn't deserve these things. I didn't deserve my job. Who gave you your job? Who gave you your spouse? Who gave you your children? Who gave you your friendships? You think you earned these things on your own? If you've read anything in the Bible over the course of your life, the one thing that it reminds you over and over and over again is what? You deserve nothing of these things. You earn none of these things. If anything, you've been a part of the breaking of these things. God gave you all these things. We've become a slave to our own desires. And, you know, after a while, you realize that you've treated these things as if they're there to serve you, when in reality, God has put you in in their lives to serve them, to be their steward. Scripture, throughout the Bible, you see that we are fools looking for replacements of God. Fools always look for replacements. In fact, even when you suffer, a fool will say, I need to get rid of the suffering and find a replacement for it. That's what a fool does. But a wise person will stop and look to learn, look to mature, look to grow, look to change. Fools replace the circumstance. Fools replace the external. A wise person will look internally and change and see what's happening internally. What happens here? Verse 7, the suffering hits. And the Israelites, over the course of time, they're being bitten and they're, being bit and they're dying. And they make this connection between their grumbling and their suffering. And you would think that these Israelites who are being bit by the snakes, they would come around and say, God is being vengeful. Is God being vengeful here? That's not what they say. Even the people who are suffering here don't say that. They realize God is using these things to bring me back. God is using these things to bring me back. The first thing they do, they go back to Moses and they say, we have sinned against God. We have sinned against you. Please pray for us. We want to get back. We've, we realize that we rejected the one person who gives us everything. We rejected the one hope, the one source of everything that we are. Take us back. We need to get back. They saw a connection between their suffering and their sin. Now, that doesn't mean that all of your suffering is connected to sin, your sin. That's not what I'm saying here. But all suffering is connected to the brokenness of the world. Sin. Sin in general. But a lot of our suffering is connected to our specific sin. And that's what's going on here. They realized, they made a connection between their specific sin and their specific suffering. And they realized, the Lord has put this in my life. I need to go back. My sin is caught up with me. It's resulted in alienation from me, from, from God. I need to get back to God. 
It's resulted in suffering. And uh, so they realize that, wow, these things have consequences. Sin has consequences. If you live a life of lies, those lies will eventually catch up with you. And if you haven't figured this out, it results in this. You become alienated from people that you care about, and you start to lose them. You start to lose trust. It ruins families. It ruins relationships. It ruins your reputation. It ruins trust. It distorts trust at the least. It'll probably ruin trust. If you live a life of malice or greed, what happens? That greed is going to shape you. That greed is going to take over you. That greed is going to ruin you, and it's going to ruin other people. It's going to distort your view of yourself. It's going to distort your view of other people. Um, If you've read Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, incredible book, um, and you have these two characters. You have Dimsdale and you have Chillingsworth. And without going into the, the story, Dimsdale, this religious person, is living a life of lies. And those lies, over the course of time in the book, you see how the lies are corroding him and he, until he finally passes. And then you see Chillingsworth, who knows the lie. He's keeping it aside so that the hate, the malice, is corroding him. And so at the end of the story, both people are just a shadow of what they were when the story started. What's Hawthorne telling us here? Sin erodes. Sin alienates and corrodes and ruins you and consumes you. That's what suffering, that's a suffering of sin. Oscar Wilde, picture of Dorian Gray. You have this beautiful, handsome man who lives this crazy lifestyle. And over the course of time, what happens? The painting of Dorian Gray is an erosion of what he once was until eventually the life catches up with the painting. Sin erodes. Sin corrodes. Here, the Israelites draw back to Moses. They draw back to God. No more alienation. They're not going to blame other people. They're not going to make excuses. They realize we sinned. We sinned. Finally, they go to Moses and they say, pray for us. You know, we are weak people. Pray for us. They don't say, Moses, we promise we're going to try harder. That's not what they say. They say, Moses, we deserve this. Will you pray that God will take it away? Will you pray that God will forgive us? They recognize we can't do better on our own. I'm trapped in my sin. I'm trapped in my weaknesses. I'm trapped in my grumbling. I need rescue. I'm a caterpillar, Martin Luther. I'm a caterpillar in a ring of fire. I need to be rescued. I can't get out on my own. So you have the problem of sin. You have the pain of sin. Results in alienation, corrosion. What's the prescription for our sin? And you see this in verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read, well, actually, what happens here. I'm just going to tell you. God tells Moses, make a snake. Put it up on a pole. When the people look at the snake, they're going to live. Tell them to behold the snake. And when they do, they're going to live. The snake, think about what's going on here. The snake was a symbol of the enemy. Here are these Israelites. They're getting bit by these snakes, bitten by these snakes, and they're dying. They're just dying left and right. So what does God do? He tells them, behold the snake, and you're going to live. It's almost like a slap in the face that these people are getting bitten. They're dying. They're, they're, they're being cursed. And God says, I know you're being cursed. I want you to look to the curse and you'll live. That's what God wants them to do. The snake is a symbol of the thirst. It's a symbol of, of the curse. Why does he do this? And it makes very little sense until centuries later. It makes very, very little sense. Centuries later, Jesus is sitting with Nicodemus at night. 
And, and Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and there he explains this text. He says, here's Jesus. He's healing the blind man. He heals the leper. He heals the paralyzed. John chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. It's printed in your bulletins. And Jesus says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus explains the meaning, meaning of the snake here. Just as the people looked to the snake, just as they looked to the curse, and they were healed physically, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you can look to the Son of Man who's going to be lifted up as the curse. The Son of Man will be lifted up as the curse. And in the same way that the Israelites in the ancient times looked to that snake and they were cured, you can look to the Son of Man who will be held up as the curse. And when you look to him, when you behold him for your ultimate healing, you will be cured. That's what he says. In other words, what he's saying is this, Nicodemus, I am the snake. I am the symbol of the curse. I will be the symbol of the thirst. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes this, Jesus Christ. He says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What he's saying is this, Jesus Christ, the hands of the king are healing hands. Lord of the Rings, the hands of the king are healing hands. He's the only one who would truly be able to obey the Father. Never complained. He never complains. Philippians chapter 2 says this, he never considered equality with God something to be grasped. What's that mean? Jesus is always content. No matter what God provided him, he was always content. He never complained. He was never impatient, never dissatisfied. In fact, he was wholly satisfied in God. I am in the Father. The Father has me. And when you have that, he says, you will have life. I have life. I'm completely satisfied in my life. John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the true manna. These Israelites, they complained uh, of this manna that would grew every day and spoiled every day. At the end of the day, it would spoil. So it would have to be renewed every day. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the real manna because I'm everlasting and I will always satisfy you. Isaiah chapter 53, it's printed in your call to worship. How does Jesus satisfy? That, those series of verses tell you that he became the curse. The ultimate man with the ultimate contentment in his life, the ultimate satisfaction in his life. But he grew more satisfied with the idea of becoming the curse. He became the curse. Said he was led like a lamb to slaughter, and yet he remained silent. No complaints. He was on his way to death. No complaints. On the cross. Jesus didn't just become a symbol of the curse. He became the curse. On the cross, Jesus didn't just suffer, you know, alienation from people, the rejection of people. Yeah, the people mocked him. They hurled insults at him. He was alienated from his own disciples. They had abandoned him. But on the cross, he suffered the ultimate alienation. He suffered the ultimate dislocation, the ultimate dissociation. 
The ultimate suffering was what? On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, this is the ultimate alienation. This is the ultimate thirst. He said, I thirst on the cross. I'm thirsting. You know what he's saying? You know, Adam was driven out of paradise because he was alienated from the Father. But Jesus left paradise in order to be alienated from the Father. Alienate, Jesus was, Adam was alienated because he sinned. Jesus left paradise in order to be alienated for the sake of our sin, for our sin. And he said, I thirst. I'm thirsty on the cross. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, I'm physically thirsty. Yes, I'm hungering. But I have been forsaken by the Father, and I am dissatisfied. I was satisfied, wholly satisfied. No matter what I experienced in my life, I was with the Father. And that gave me complete rest, complete satisfaction. But on the cross, he's saying, I thirst. No longer satisfied. God has forsaken me. God has left me. He's experiencing the ultimate alienation, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate corrosion of hell. Hell is fire. Hell is separation from God. Jesus is saying, I am in hell, and this fire is burning and raging in me like thirst. That's what he's saying. God himself, separated from his own son, suffering the alienation of his own son, thirsting after his son, forsaking his son. The Trinity being torn apart. That's the gospel. The Trinity was torn apart so that we could be reconciled to God. Jesus suffered the thirst of hell so that we could experience the blessings of heaven. Do you see that? Jesus did that for you. Jesus suffered alienation from the joy of the Father. Why? So that we could have the joy of the Father. We could have the Father. And you know what satisfied Jesus more than remaining in paradise? Why did he leave paradise? If Jesus is all-wise and all-powerful and the heir to the throne of God, why did he leave paradise? In your word of encouragement, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says what? We read in the word of encouragement this morning. Jesus suffered the, he scorned, he suffered the shame of the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. In Isaiah 53, actually, if you read Isaiah 53 in its entirety, at the tail end of those, the last two verses of Isaiah 53 say this. He suffered that scorn. He endured the shame. Why? For the satisfaction, his satisfaction was the justification of his people. That's what satisfied him more than being in paradise, to be with us, to have us with him. To the degree that you believe that, and what I mean by that is to the degree that you place the weight of your life on that, that is to believe. A lot of people come to me and they say, you know, Donnie, I'm trying to believe. I'm trying so hard to believe. If you're trying to believe, you don't believe. All you had to do was behold the snake and you would be healed. You're dying, you're being consumed, you're, you're dying of thirst, dissatisfaction. You behold the snake you're gonna be, and you're healed. It doesn't take work to look at something. You wake up, you open your eyes. How much emphasis or work do you place so that your eyes can see? You wake up, you see. We're called to behold the cross, to behold Christ crucified. It doesn't take much work to do that. 
All, all it takes is, is for us to behold, to be able to see, to wake up and see that our sin has alienated us from the Father and we're suffering because of our sin. All it takes is for us to see the cross. Do you see it? Do you trust in the perfect record of Christ that he did everything you were required to do? Do you trust in the perfect death of Christ that he, he suffered for our sakes and it was his joy. He was glad to do it on the cross for our sakes. If you're pursuing your own desires, you're dissatisfied with your community, you feel empty at times, empty in your job, empty in your relationships, and you're working, you're constantly working, you're working for love, you're working for acceptance. You know what you're doing? You're thirsting. Some of us are saying, well, I'm not really like that, but you know what you're doing? You're, you're, you're religious. So you get up and you read your Bible and you're praying and you look around and, you're, and you look at everybody else and you say, you see, I'm better than him and I'm better than her because these people, they, they don't live that way. They don't, they don't live like me. You know what you're doing? You're thirsting. You're thirsting in your goodness. You're still thirsting. You don't have the Father. And that's why you're angry and you're judging other people. That's what you're doing. You're still working. It doesn't take any work to behold. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. The only prerequisite of coming to Christ is what? Saying, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. Admit that you're thirsty. I'm dissatisfied. I'm I'm unhappy about these areas in my life, and I realize I've been pursuing these things, and as a result, I'm dissatisfied. It just leaves me more and more empty. Will you fill me? It's a God-sized hole that only God can fill. Let Jesus Christ, his life, his death, let that fill your life because when you do, when you do that, it will fill you in ways that you would never imagine. You will have power. You will have strength. You feel weak to your sin, you will have strength and power. The Spirit comes with power to overcome sin. The Spirit comes with power, you will have wisdom. That's what gives you. Come to Christ. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Behold the cross. Fix your eyes on Christ. It's not about how confidently you look. It's not about how long you look. Sometimes even as a- how accurately you look, you look. It's about where you're looking. Look to the cross. See the beauty of Christ. See the work of Christ for you. When we sing in a response song, what you're really doing is you're practicing looking at the beauty of Christ. When you pray to the Father, you know what you're doing? You're beholding the beauty of Christ that saves when we gather in our small groups, gathering in community, and all the more, I encourage you to do that as we approach Easter. You know what you're saying together? You don't share about how great you are. Whoever does that in their community groups, you share about your weakness, your thirst, how much more you need the gospel. I'm broken, I'm thirsty, I'm needy. Yeah, I'm insecure, and it plays itself out in terrible ways. And yeah, I'm angry, and it plays itself out in terrible ways. Only Jesus can heal me. We look to the cross. That's what we're doing in our community groups. We're we're beholding the cross. Only he can quench your thirst. Only he can satisfy you. He says, I am the bread of life. To eat, you don't get nourished when you just chew and spit out, right? When you eat something, you have to digest. Let it work in you. That's when the nutrients get absorbed. Take of Christ this week. As you reflect on the Lenten devotionals, take of Christ Behold the cross. Fall in love again. Let's respond in song and in prayer, shall we? Let's pray.